I was at a truck stop in Horse Cave, Kentucky, and I saw this big hairy trucker come walking towards me. Really tough looking, rugged guy. Looked like he was in a bad mood, so I tried to step out of his way and give him some room. But we made eye contact. And that's about the point when the social contract kicked in, and I felt the need to address him in some way. So I said, Hey, buddy, how you doing? He said, I'm fat and I'm ugly, but at least I'm not on Facebook. You find wisdom in the damnedest places. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and I've been on the road for 15 of the last 18 weeks touring in Europe. And man, it feels really, really good to be back home. This is a personal journal. It's an audio experiment. I should say up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided I'd do it anyway. This show is founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. My guest this week is Mr. John D. Graham. John D. is a singer-songwriter who lives in Austin, Texas, and in 2006 he was named the Austin Musician of the Year during South by Southwest Music Festival. He's the only artist to be voted into the Austin Music Hall of Fame three different times, once as a solo artist, once as a member of the Skunks, which were Austin's very first punk rock band, and once as a member of the True Believers with Alejandro Escoveda. He's also played guitar with people like John Doe, James McMurtry, Eliza Gilkison, Kelly Willis, John Hyatt, Michelle Schacht, Lone Justice, Patty Griffin, and a lot of other folks. You can find out everything you need to know about John D at johndgram.weebly.com. I caught up with John D. when he was on tour. He was driving from Pittsburgh to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That's a nine-hour drive. Just think about that. Nine hours, and then he stopped and talked to me. The only place that we could meet up was at a truck stop in Laverne, Tennessee. So we sat down in a diner area there. So you might hear a little bit of people talking in the background. You might hear plates clanging and things like that. But I think it kind of adds to it. Just think about that. Nine hours. Welcome to touring in the United States. Here's Mr. John D. Graham. How about you, honey? You want seconds? No, thank you. No, okay. I'm sorry. Do I pay you? You're ready, sweetie. You know, the thing is, though, what we do is not that much different from the long-haul truckers. It's just they're paid better for it. They're paid really. much better. We just drove from Pittsburgh. <laughs> Tell me about your last 24 hours. Um, you know what? Honestly, it's been a really good run. Um, you know, I didn't tour for, for about two and a half, three years. And so my assumption is always, well, people have completely forgotten about me. But because, um, you know, I mean, we're all we're all like it's like this little hotbed of insecurity. But um, the record is getting airplay and I'm having like bigger shows than I've had, you know, in the past. That's I mean, beautiful. it's unaccountable. I, I don't know why, 
But uh, so we had a we had a great show in Cleveland at uh, Beachland Ballroom. I know you've played there, and then we were at Club Cafe in Pittsburgh. They're both like really well attended. We had a really good time, and then drove nine hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the nine hours, you have to talk to me in a truck oh, stop. Oh, it's good to see you, Otis. It's good to see you. How how um how long have the drives been on this tour? They've been very long. Or? You know what? Really, not not so bad. Um, but you know, it's all it's all a matter of comparison because like two months ago, a month and a half ago, I did the West Coast, and that just makes everything seem like a short drive. Yeah. You know, because. I mean, it's eight hours from L.A. to San Francisco, and it's another eight hours from there up to Seattle. And it just, you know, so this, if it's under six hours, I'm like, wow, short drive. I noticed the Europeans complain about three-hour drives. Oh, right, right. And it's like you can, you know, you you can play for two months in Germany and never drive further than two hours. It's always my thing about Germany is always like, and there's Frankfurt on the left, and there's Frankfurt on the right. All right, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20, 30, and 50. Have a safe and good day. See, uh, my mom actually uh, was like just a few hours short of having her PhD in education. And um, she ended up teaching third grade in this little ranch land school, you know, like maybe 10 students tops. And, uh, but she was like this just voracious reader. She would always have like three books going, you know, at one time, there's one in the bedroom, there's one in the car and there's one in her purse. So she was never caught without her reading material, you know? Yeah. And, um, so they had a little, I lived in Kamado Valley, which it was like population about 200 when everybody was home. And um, it's all ranch land out there and and, um, very small Anglo, very small English-speaking population. And so the, uh, I think the Garden Club or Ladies Club, something like that, started this library. And... uh, they were, you know, everyone was contributing their books, and they were getting some assistance from the state of Texas, and so it was a decent little library. But there wasn't anybody that cared. Like no one ever rented the books. No one ever came and checked out the books. And so eventually they lost their funding, and they had to shut it down. And so they were just uh, going to get rid of all the books. And my mom said, "Well, I'll take them." And so she got 5,000 books. 5,000? 5,000 books. Just cardboard boxes upon cardboard boxes. And we spent a whole Saturday moving them into the attic of our house. (laughs) And so essentially, we had a library over our heads, you know? And I was like 10, maybe 10, 11 in that that age range. And, um, And it was free range. It was like I go up there, and the only rule was that if I had to ask what a word meant or what was going on in this particular book, I couldn't read it. And so I learned right away just go to the dictionary, you know, because then I discovered Henry Miller at 12, you know, and, oh, wow. and yeah, Tropic of Cancer is like pretty racy stuff for a 12 year old. That's pretty racy stuff for me. Yeah, it is actually. It's, it's still pretty racy, to tell you the truth. But um, so that anyway, that was the kind of thing that I grew up with, you know, was uh, 
this just wide open, unsupervised, crazy, you know, like I, I really growing up out there because we were even outside of town. It was 10 miles into town, four miles to the Mexican border. You could like walk to Mexico from my house. Four miles. Yeah. And so I would leave the house in the morning during the summer. I'd leave the house in the morning and come back at dark and no one would ever ask me where I'd been, what I was doing. It was all unsupervised, you know, go upstairs, get a handful of books, you know, walk down to the river, lay around and read my book. It was pretty great. Yeah, that sounds great. Very unsocialized, very unsocialized way to raise a kid, you know. Did you sit and think of, uh, you know, think, dream of other places, or were you happy just in your own little world there? You know what? Honestly, Otis, it never even occurred to me that there were other places, you know? Like, um, we moved down there from the Texas Panhandle, from Leveland, actually. We lived outside of Leveland in a little farming community called Whiteface, Texas. And we moved down there when I was six. <clears throat> and so I sort of came of age down there and it was just so different from everything that I would read about in books and that I would see you know we the, the, this was the days before cable radio uh, cable TV and everything right and so you had to rely on the weather conditions being just right and then you could pick up a TV signal from San Antonio right and so maybe once a week once every two weeks all of a sudden conditions would line up just right and we'd be able to get tv and so one of us would run out the door and go television television and everybody would come running in and we would watch the tv and i just wouldn't relate to any of it because it had nothing to do nothing whatsoever to do with how my family lived and what we did you know and um i remember going to uh, san antonio for the first time when i was 13 and being shocked at how many blonde people there were, you know? <laughs> and that's San Antonio, which doesn't have that many blonde people to start with, you know? <clears throat> so, uh, so, yeah, I didn't really dream of other places because that was all I knew. Yeah. And then, like, into high school, I started getting big ideas. It's sad, but but what we had were the cockfights, you know, and um, what was that like? It was not out, not saying what was it like in the ring, but what was it like out in the audience? It was really intense. You know what? It it's as dark as you would imagine it to be. Um, we would go across the river, and and there would be these little they call them ferias, but it's really like a carnival kind of thing. And um, there'd be all these just like really shaky um, homemade carnival rides, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna actually can I take a detour here? Take a detour. So I went. I guess I was 15 or 16, and I went with my friend Chris Danemeyer over cross the border to this feria and and you know you, there was no drinking age over there and so we were drinking and hanging around and it was this one was particularly ratty impoverished you know one of the rides that they had was just this old like a chrysler motor sitting on a platform with this drive shaft coming up and they had a big pipe hooked up to it with a swing on the end of the pipe and they would start this thing up 
and the pipe would just start going in this wild circle. <laughs> and it was sort of like, it was sort of like, you know, the astronauts in the G-force test, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it was under this tent. Oh God, this is—I hadn't thought of this in years. And um, so this young man gets in the swing, and they start it up. And it starts going, and pretty soon, this kid's just screaming. It's just, and it's like the Doppler effect. It's like, ah, ah, every time he goes around. And so then somehow the lights go off in the tent, and everybody's freaking out. And so they start trying to turn the, the motor off. They can't get it to stop. They get the lights back on, and the kid's lost his pants because the G-force has like pulled his shoes and his pants off, and he's naked in this thing going around in this crazy circle. And it was like, as we're watching that, even at the age of 15, I went, you will never see something like this ever again in your life. You will never see this again. Okay, so the cockfights. So then, um, you know, the thing that people don't, realize is that it's 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 heavy betting like hundreds of dollars right and so these guys take it super seriously and it's not just about which rooster wins it's about the dollars it was even hundreds of dollars back then oh yeah yeah absolutely in a in a country where ten dollars means a lot you know and so uh it was not you know when you're at a like at a racetrack and you can see that some people are just having a having a blast. They're having a ball, and then there's some people that are there and they're working. Yeah, they're gambling. They're making money. And there was a lot of that, and it was just really dark, you know. And it would be just under a tent with some homemade bleachers and this pit dug in the middle, you know. And uh, just like the 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 ritual to it or the ceremony to it was was I mean it's still kind of eerie. You know, because they get the chickens out and they got the little hood over them. And yeah. They pull the hood off. And they blow water in their face, spit water in their face to work them up. You know, yeah. to to get them get them agitated. Put the little spurs on them and throw them in the pit. Ooh. You know, and it's 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 grim. Yeah. You know, but um, were these people from the area right there? Did they come in from elsewhere? They would come in from elsewhere and from the area there. I mean, the area that we were at was so poor. There wasn't that much, you know, money to be gambled, but was this legal? Was there anything in Mexico? Okay. Everything's legal. At that point, you know, during the seventies in Mexico, it was very laissez faire, you know. If if you could put it together it was legal. Um so I was thinking actually Though I did see a great lucha libre um, three years ago, I was down in uh, Sayulita, Mexico, which is right down from Puerto Vallarta. It's sort of in the jungle out there, in, in a little bitty town, and they have the traveling lucha that comes around, right? And they have like the big ring and everything, and it, and there's there's four matches on the card, right? Yeah. And and it starts off with the local guys who have like the really crappy costumes you know <laughs> that were obviously sewed by their mother or something you know it's the opening band exactly it's the opening band the opening <laughs> opener like the local opener okay. and it's just it's like wow that's just so lame you didn't even touch him and he fell down you know <laughs> and um i was with 
some other Americans who I didn't know. We just sort of had like expats, like fell together and went to this lucha, right? And uh, I was just howling and yelling at the yelling at the wrestlers and everything. <laughs> and one of the guys that I was with, who, like I say, we didn't really even know each other. He goes, "You know, this is fake, right?" <laughs> It's like, this isn't fake. It's kabuki theater. So the you know? outcome may be predetermined. Yeah, right. But these guys are taking balls. Oh, dude, it's for real, you know? I mean, and, and it was funny because you could see when they crossed the line and they would start to get mad. Oh, yeah. You know? And then it's on. Because in the beginning, it's a lot of, it's, it's ritualized moves. And mm -hmm. I do this and you do that. I say this, you say that. But then one of them gets thrown out of the ring. And he's a little mad because he like hits the ground kind of hard. So he comes back in the ring with a folding chair. And then it's on, you know. But um, I love Lucha Libre. It's, it's everything that's wonderful about Mexico. And the audience you know? is still really into oh, They draw wow. big, big houses, it's don't they? It's huge. And see, like this, this particular Lucha was, was uh, in Sayulita, which is... 40, 50 miles down the coast from Puerto Vallarta. And so you're in the selva. You're, you're in the jungle, you know? And you think, like, this town has two restaurants and a couple of little stores and then, like, you know, adobe houses with, with tile roofs, and that's it. Yeah. And you think, oh, this is going to be terrible. And, I mean, there was, like, 400 people there. I don't know where they <laughs> – out of the jungle, here they come, that's you know? beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then they you know they have two matches and then there's a big break and everybody eats you know <laughs> and it's just like it's crazy everybody eats and gets four or five beers and then the rest of the match goes on you know I actually got to play at the Armadillo three times before they closed um, I was in a band uh, called the Skunks with Jesse Sublet and uh, we opened for John Cale there, who actually we ended up sort of being pals with him and went to New York under his wing and like played CBs and Maxes and sort of got in that circuit through John Cale. What year was this? That would have been 79. Okay. And so then we opened for the Ramones oh, and beautiful. then we opened for the Clash. And wow. uh, it was that tour that they were doing with Joe Ely and the, the whole band with the Mains brothers and everything. And it was us and Joe and The Clash. And it was easily in the top five rock concerts I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was just like your hair was standing on end from beginning to end. It was so good. So good. And then they tore the place down, you know. And I, I, I get it. You know, I, I know everything changes, and I, it's, I'm not an enemy of progress at all. I just don't know that that was progress. Yeah. You Sometimes know? it's hard to tell what progress actually is. I think the jury's out. You was know? it true? You hear the audiences were, you know, it would be hippies and oh, punk rockers tell and you rednecks. What, and we played, we played on that show. That was the one that, that I think kind of showed me, or in retrospect, I see what was so special about that time in Austin was uh, we, we, we started that show with The Clash, and then immediately I went out in the audience because I wanted to see what was going on. You know, I wanted to see this myself. And I'm looking around, and the place is just shoulder to shoulder, and there's like cowboy hat, ponytail, mohawk. <laughs> cowboy hat, ponytail, mohawk. And there was no, like there was lots of eyeing each other, but there was no 
bullshit, you know? Yeah. People were on, and the people who were there for Joe could be cowboy hat or ponytail. The people that were there for the clash could be mohawk or ponytail, but there was like this beautiful subset that happened that was all three, you know? <laughs> were any camps converting the others? You know what? The funny thing is, you could sort of see it started off distinct sections of the audience, you know, like all the hats are there and all the, you know, by the end, it was just a mishmash, you know, people just going <laughs> berserk, you know, because I mean, the clash had that thing where even if you weren't, even if that wasn't musically your thing, you would listen to it and go, Oh yeah. yeah, that was completely real. Yeah. And yeah. everybody gets sucked into that. Absolutely. And you know, police and thieves, you know, and, and, um, they came out. I still remember this, man. I'll remember this to the day I die. Like, we played, and then Joe played, and that band, like with the Mains Brothers and everything, it was just unbelievable. It was so high energy and just like really screaming. And there's this long wait for the clash, and the house lights are down and, and everything. And then all of a sudden, all this, the stage lights come on white on the stage, and they're already on the stage. And he picks up the mic stand, Strummer picks up the mic stand and counts it off by slamming it down on this wooden stage. Like, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And they went into it. And it was just like, wow. You know, I mean, I, look, I, oh, Goosebumps yeah. just telling the story. You know, it's, it was unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and uh, to this day, you know, I feel really blessed. It got to, like, see all that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did everybody come to Austin back then? Pretty much, okay. you know. Um, it's, it's out of the way for people. People would have to put a little effort into touring down it there. It is, it is. But, you know, um, I, re I mean, I was talking to Mike June about this. You know, I saw Springsteen doing the Born to Run tour. And that's when, I mean, he was big in the population centers. But Texas, I, I don't even, I mean, I, I, knew, I knew about him because I read Rolling Stone and that kind of stuff. But... I don't think people. I'm, I mean, I remember the show being just phenomenal, but I don't remember it being packed. You know, I think that I've read that his first, the first time he ever played Texas was at the Armadillo opening for Willie. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I've read. That I've, somewhere. Heard, I've heard that myself. I've heard that myself. We'll say it's true then. Let's say that's true. Right. Yeah. So, you know, um, to this day, still, you know, I mean, Leonard Cohen is starting off his world tour in Austin next month. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm proud to live there. You know, uh, when you're at a party and after a certain amount of drinking has taken place, people start showing their scars, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it turns into a scar party. Oh, that's nothing. Look at this, you know? <laughs> that's the same thing with musicians telling their bad gig stories. Oh, that's luxury. Let me tell you mine. We're kind of bragging. Right, and... right. So we drove all the way out to Pendleton, Texas, which is just this tiny little farming community. <clears throat> and we've been promised this really good gig at the Pendleton Pump. And we're driving out to the address, and we're even out of the little tiny town, and we're looking, and finally we find it, and it's this barn in the middle of just endless cornfields, right? <laughs> And so we're like, okay, well, this could be all right. It's, it could be all right. So we go in and we set up and we sound check. And nobody shows up. And it's hour till we play. Nobody's there. <laughs> Time to play. There's one guy there. And we're, damn, okay. So we go ahead and we play the first set. 
still the one guy. So we go outside, we're having a cigarette, just going, damn, you know, I, standing there looking at all these cornfields. And, and the one guy that was there comes out and he's like, hey, how y'all doing? And he goes, I'm sorry, there's not more people here, but you know, it's the corn fest. <laughs> Like dead center of like looks like fifty square miles of cornfields and it's like we're there on the night of the corn fest. You know. I don't know where everybody is, but it must be the corn fest. So that's become actually that's become slang, like with me and Alejandro and a few other people of like maybe it's the corn fest, you know? Perhaps it's the corn fest. Sometimes it's the corn fest. <laughs> Sometimes it's the corn fest. What's yours? What's your worst? I mean, what week? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, is back then, all the truckers were men. Yeah. And and their cultures changed as much as anybody's culture. And now it's a lot of couples. Yeah. You know, and, and they switch off. The wife drives while the husband sleeps. The husband drives while the wife sleeps, you know. And at four in the morning, the wife can come in here and get a salad, you know, instead of a greasy ham. You know, I know exactly what you're saying. That's a good deal for uh, a husband and wife to be able to. Yeah. I'm sure the if yeah. you're constantly on the road like that, yeah. the money's good, you're together. Hell yeah, hell yeah. And then, you know, um I mean, okay, they, they've been sanitized kind of maybe in the same way that Times Square's been sanitized, but, you know, also I wouldn't be afraid to take my son, you know, my little boy into Times Square or truck stop now, you know? It's yeah. a give and take. It's a give and take. Yeah, I understand that. Well, John D., I really appreciate you ah. meeting me at a truck stop. This has been fun, man. I've, I've actually enjoyed this. We should meet at truck stops in rural Tennessee let's, more often. Let's do this. Let's make once a year. We're going to meet in a truck stop and do this. All right? All right. We'll do that. We'll cool. do that. Cool. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John D. for meeting up with me at the truck stop in Laverne, Tennessee. If you'd like to find out more about John D., just go to johndgram.weebly.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and uh, pick up a t-shirt, a CD, get a download of any record I've made. You could buy one of my photographs. You could pick up one of Amy's records there. Anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out this show but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave a comment. Leave a five-star review. It really, really goes a long way towards helping us move up in search rankings there and helps more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.